Okay, so our next guest tonight um, is president of the North American Marine Alliance, local commercial fisherman, and longtime musician, Jason Jarvis. Welcome to Voices of Westerly. <laughs> happy, to, happy to be here. So, Jason, I'm going to start the questioning like I start all of them. Uh, what is your Westerly origin story? Well, it's pretty funny that we're sitting here. Um, so my family moved here in 1976 from Mystic. Um, my dad was a, a shipwright at the Mystic Seaport, master shipwright there. So I grew up around there until 1976. And then uh, I remember coming here to see Star Wars. So we walked down the road from Mountain Avenue to come here to see Star Wars. And uh, so that was my origin was similar to Keith, you know, a short jump across, you know, a stone's throw from Westerly. Um, had to go across a couple rivers to get here, but here we are. And, uh, been here, been here a while. And what, uh, I guess, I mean, there's a lot to talk about with you. I guess I want to start with the, the commercial fishing side of things. You've, you've been here, uh, a couple of times recently with events that we've partnered with eating with the ecosystem, talking about, uh, the Rhode Island fishing economy, supply chain, things like that. Um, but what did, what's your history? What's your history in the commercial fishing world here? It's pretty funny. Um, so besides my dad building ships, he was, uh, you know, in the like merchant Marine era, but way back in the, you know, twenties and thirties, um, all of my brothers were either fish cutters or fishermen, um, or recreational fishermen, um, grew up around the water. So it was either rod and reel fishing or, you know, chasing trout in a stream somewhere. And uh, so I, I started, and it's kind of strange, I started out as a chef, um, got out of that business while I still could as a young kid. I was a sous chef at 17. Um, moved on to Sandy's Fruit Market for a bit of my life, and then got a little tired of that and had a chance to work as a cook in a drug rehab. So it gets interesting from there. I went from being a cook in an adolescent residential drug rehab to managing the place and running it for eight years. And then this is part of the story that most people think is pretty funny. One day my brother shows up who has been fishing forever and he has a couple five gallon buckets with him. And I have no idea what's going on. And the house manager says, I think this guy's your brother. You know, it's a locked facility. So I go out the front door. He's got a bucket of, tu bucket of tuna loins and a bucket of lobster. And he's like, I was wondering if you could work a couple of weeks for me. I'm going to Tahoe. <laughs> I'm like, what? He goes, you know how to run a boat. You know how to cut fish. Just, it's not that bad. <laughs> I had some time off, so I thought we were going to go fishing. Little did I know that I was going to be gill netting 45 miles south of Montauk on a 45-foot wooden Virginia dead rise gill netter. So that was the beginning of it. Um, I, I was sick every day. <laughs> um, loved being out there. I mean, it was amazing because one of the, one of the other members of the crew was someone we grew up with, one of our closest friends, and uh, so I felt safe. The captain was a great guy. He was, you know, he was sober. It was uh, a good good group of guys. But when I got my first paycheck, anybody who knows anything about social work, you can't pay your mortgage in social work. So when I got my first paycheck in 1998, um. It was $1,200. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I was like losing my mind. I'm like, this is great for, you know, 
a week's worth of pay. And the captain comes out, thought something was wrong with me. I'm like, no, this is great. It's 1200 bucks. That's, that's pretty good for a week. And he said, no, that was for a day. <laughs> I still have the 1099 from then. I made uh, $36,000 in three months. Wow. Wow. So needless to say, I had a lot of comp time at my job as a social worker. And I went back and proceeded to give my formal resignation. And that was the beginning of the end. And I haven't stopped. And that industry is such a, an important, vital part of this entire region. Um, and I know that you've taken that work now and you've aligned yourself with a lot of advocacy work behind it as well. Um, yeah. And I guess before we talk about the specifics of that advocacy work, can you talk about maybe what led you to move on from just making that paycheck and doing the work to wanting to do more on the, the social side. I mean, if you, if you came from work in social work, you almost, it seems merged the two worlds uh, in some ways. And it, so what was, what was kind of, what, what made that happen or come together for you? Well, I, I saw what, what was going on back then and it still continues now is that we used to have, what was called a days at sea regulatory process where you got so many days at sea, you were allowed to catch so many fish. When you were done with that, you had to wait. And, and proceed. When I got into this fishery, they started talking about catch shares, quota owning, um, and all of these guys that I had known for a very long time and come to respect that had fished forever were getting pushed out of the fishery by corporate interest. So it got to the point where some pretty powerful people got to change some rules and regs on the federal level and were able to take fish away from fishermen buy it and then lease it back to those same fishermen. And it was really difficult for people to understand. Um, and that was about the time I started to learn the, the process and the regulatory process and the science end of it and started, you know, getting a little more into the research end of it, working on uh, trying to understand how they come up with quotas, so on and so forth. But when it came down to it, most of the fishermen I worked for were some of the most brilliant people in the world that could not do this. They couldn't go to a speaking engagement. They, they would go to fisheries council meetings and they would just start yelling and swearing and walk out the door because they were watching their livelihoods ripped out from under them after fishing for 40 years. Um, so I decided to become a voice and it's strange how it happened because one, two of the captains I worked for both had speech impediments. Um, so they had a tough time speaking and then when they would get upset, they would stutter or one, uh, one had a really bad lisp. He couldn't, he couldn't do it. He was embarrassed. Um, so I learned the process and I, I started to be the voice for them. And, um, once I learned it, I, I realized I, I started making regulators very nervous because they were like, wow, this guy might know what he's talking about. Um, and you're on the board for the, the Northeast Atlantic Marine Alliance. Yeah. So it used to be the Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance. <laughs> And then it became the North American Marine Alliance. And the reasoning for that was it's, it's an organization that was put together to try to protect small scale, mid scale commercial fishermen and fishing families um, because we were being sold, you know, the quota was being sold out from under us. The fishery was being sold out from under us and nobody was doing anything about it. So it started in Maine and the North shore. And then a lot of interest 
from all around the country came about. And we ended up two years ago changing the name because now we have, we have people in networking for every coastal community, every fishing community in the United States, British Columbia, Iceland, uh, a lot of connections with indigenous folks on the West coast and uh, Alaska. And it just, it blew up. I mean, we have folks that are trying to replicate what we're doing now in Europe. Um, and we're also part of the world forum of fisher peoples. I mean, I was just on a, a zoom meeting with 25 different members of the world forum of fisher peoples from around the world. And it's just remarkable to, to sit in a seat and listen to these folks. It's like, yeah, that was an eye opener. Um, but that, that became interesting when I realized it was, uh, this group NAMA helped to empower fishermen and most of the board of directors are fishermen, people in the fishing business or members of indigenous tribes. So, um, a lot of powerful people sitting in there. And last time I spoke to you, you were telling me about a potential, uh, farm aid event that you were going to partake in. Is, is that? Five years. We've been, uh, NAMA is on or part of the administrative end of, of Farm Aid because we are in what's called a shared leadership model, which is now pretty much partnered with the National Family Farm Coalition. Um, so it's pretty amazing. I mean, I think we've gone, I've, my wife and I have gone to Farm Aid five years now in a row. Uh, we get to go to the press conference. We get to meet up with a bunch of people. We, we get to hang out with the farmers and the farmers get to meet fishermen. And we were the first group to have a fisherman represented on stage at farm aid and it was uh, my friend captain charlie from from georgia that's amazing and it was yeah people were bawling it was i was bawling i'm like <laughs> come on it's like he's a you know a person of color shrimp fisherman out of georgia and here he is sitting up on stage and there's willie nelson and i'm like that's captain charlie when did he get up there you know but and that's another facet of of who you are is music so I mean, a little that's, bit. That's a, another piece of it. Let's let's talk about your music history here in Westerly. What? Oh when did that start? Thirty-seven years ago. I'm freaking out when I said that the other day. I was like thirty. <laughs> so thirty-seven years ago, I ran into uh, my friend John Grady and my buddy Jamie Conroy, and they're like, "Hey, you know, we should start playing." And I'm like, well, what am I going to do? They say you can play guitar and sing. I'm like, well, maybe. And that was the beginning of the end. And uh, I've been playing with Jamie now. We haven't separated 37 years. We laugh. You know, been, been playing lo longer than we've been married to our wives. So it's, <laughs> and currently playing three bands. It was five. We were down to four. Now it's down to three. What are the three bands? Okay. So Glaucoma Suspect, Shame Dan Scandal, and Sunday Gravy. How, so how often are you playing these days? Uh, the winters are slow, but I think we have 60 gigs lined up for next year, which is wow. a little more than we normally do, but we're getting bored. That's a lot. And how many days are you on the boat and how, you know, what kind of hours are you putting in out there? I love it. I, I can pick, pick and choose what I do because I, I run my own boat, small boat. So I'll leave my house some days, 430 in the morning. I'm done by noon. Go home, take a nap or go hang out at Sandy Point and take a nap. It's a good place to take it. You know, it's not, yeah. not it's, it, you know, everybody gets, you know, oh, commercial fishing. No, my life is not the deadliest catch. I gave that up <laughs> a long time ago. You know, are you out there alone? Most of the time. Yeah. Yep. 
Yep. I, I like the solace. I, I like the solitude. Yeah. Um, it's uh, a little different now as I'm getting younger. Um, so yeah, this year I plan on bringing more people with me and, um, but that's another piece of what I'm doing. Um, as you know, Keith was saying, you know, about consulting, it's like, for me, I never thought that would be part of my life and I'm doing fisheries consulting, um, in educational consulting for nonprofits. And one of them is uh, the African Alliance for Rhode Island. Um, and then the other is, uh, movement education outdoors. So Movement Education Outdoors is out of Woonsocket, and part of we're, we're partnered up to teach these kids about oyster farming, fishing, sustenance fishing, recreational fishing, commercial fishing. Um, and then the African Alliance is we're trying to get food to the city. And it's, we, I started that partnership, we tried seven years ago, and it's been really tough. Um, Julius Kowale is um, from Liberia. He's been trying this forever. He tried to get me to bring him fish, to sell him fish, and I couldn't sell him fish because of regulatory process. So we're working on changing that. Um, you know, how do we get real food to the city? You can go to a bodega and get Doritos and a Coca-Cola and a pack of cigarettes, but you can't get real food. So that's part of the other madness I'm involved in. And you, I mean, when you catch, what kind of fish are you catching generally? And and you know, how is it running a small boat, getting that, that fish to market or, or, or selling it or finding a place for, for it to end up on a, a plate somewhere? It's tough. It's, uh, Rhode Island tried. And I mean, because Westley currently has no, uh, commercial fishing infrastructure. Um, I have to, I have a dockside dealer's license so I can catch my fish, bring it to one spot, park my trailer. Cause I trailer my boat. And I can sell my fish from that property. It's uh, the Weekapog bait and tackle. But I catch every species I'm allowed to catch from sea robin to sand sharks, not sand tigers. It'd be a smooth, smooth, smooth shark or smooth dog. And Keith and I have had these conversations too. It's like the difference in fishing tactics and, and, and um, part of like what Nama had said. It's like who runs the boat matters, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, every species I catch... I can sell off of my boat except for striped bass and what are considered histamine species. So I can't sell bluefish, uh, mackerel, any of that. So what we're trying to do, we already tried it once. It took six years to build a place and walk away, but that would be a whole other conversation. We learned our lesson from it and we are slowly opening up Quantica Dog Fish Company, which is going to be an educational facility, um, kind of a commissary, commissary cooperative, collaborative with fishermen, kelp farmers, oyster farmers, and it will be a seafood HACCP certified processing facility with freezer space, vacuum sealers, um, all of the permits, licenses, everything you need so that a local fisherman can bring in their catch. And if they want to be part of the co-op, they can hang out, process their own fish, vacuum seal it and sell their own fish. That's amazing. You have a, you you have an infrastructure and we have the building already in place. We actually just ordered a container today to empty the building. Um, we're working with the state to get public water certification, um, and go down the list. I mean, it's, it, it, after that, once everything's settled, the DOH approves the operational plan, the HACCP plans, and then we have to get the 14 permits and licenses. And we have most of them, but you have to have a HACCP plan in place and all your DOH licenses before you can get your federal dealer's license, state dealer's license, 
processing license, retail license. Um, yeah, there's about 14 or 15 of them. Wow. Yep. Well, Welcome to my world. That's yeah. So I end all of these things the same way, asking about legacy and what you want your legacy to be with the work that you do, but more so in this community itself. And it sounds like, sounds like that, that might be part of it. Um, but for you, I mean, what would you like your Westerly legacy to be? What would you like people to remember from the work that you do or what lasting impact would you like to see that work carry on for the next five years or more? Well, I never thought I'd be a teacher. And then I realized that I'm pretty good at it, especially when it comes to kids. So we are losing generations of knowledge. So I, I want to teach kids, adults about fishing, about food, about sourcing your food here. Um, but also I want to reestablish and help to reestablish Westerly's artisanal commercial fishing fleet, which people have no idea. You know, we talk about history. Avondale, Boatyard, Lotteryville, and Watch Hill were all commercial fishing ports. Margin Street still has a, the memorial up for the, or the, the stone that's placed there for where the shipyard used to be. Um, the Pawkatuck River used to be the artery for food and, and, and for commerce. And we don't, have, <laughs> we don't have water taxis on the Pawkatuck River. That's absolute insanity. We have more tourism and more tourism money coming into this town and you can't go to a, a dock at, you know, Margin Street where we, the Westerly Marina hopefully will be done before 2030. <laughs> See, um, that's the other couple of hats I wear. Um, there should be water taxis. There should be a commercial, a space for commercial boats. And we're losing that. And it's, it's, we've had gentrification all over every coastal community. But now we're having gentrification of marinas. My friends in Montauk were just telling me it's like a bunch of hedge funds, hedge funds bought up a whole bunch of marinas in Montauk. And I think one or two of them have now moved into Westerly. Um, and it's a big real estate grab for waterfront property for boat access. All the slip fees have already gone up. Um, and it's frightening because the common man is losing footing. And, um, and <laughs> I guess another part of this, uh, the legacy, I guess, is my family's legacy. because. I'm on the Harbor Commission. I'm on the Westley Marina Ad Hoc Committee. And as I was walking out of the town hall tonight, there's my oldest brother sitting on the steps waiting for his granddaughter, who is on the Westley School Committee. Oh, wow. And she's the first person of color to ever be on the Westley School Committee. Um, and she has received some interesting comments and letters from a few different folks, but... Uh, but to see my oldest brother, a Vietnam vet, a guy who has been through some hell, just to look on his face to be like, as I'm walking out of the town hall, he's looking at his little brother going, <laughs> what was his comment? Don't forget me in your will. <laughs> you know, I told him I was coming here. He's like, yep, don't forget me in your will. <laughs> but, um, but that to me would be the legacy is that we educated another generation or two um, to be able to feed themselves. You know, I, I think... COVID was a blessing and a curse because people didn't realize that most of our food didn't come from here. Yeah. You know, 
I know where to go if I get hungry. I got, I got a bull rake. <laughs> well, I mean, that's an amazing legacy. It sounds like you have a lot of projects that might, might live on to be legacy projects. So I hope it's pretty incredible. You got you know, my dad used to say it. I'll say it. live my, live my life. Like my ass is on fire. <laughs> sounds you know? like you're definitely doing that. Hey, uh, you, you got one chance. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. Jason Jarvis. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the United Theatre Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And if you could take a moment to leave a review, we greatly appreciate it. Your feedback helps us create content that you love. So hit that subscribe button and leave us a review and we'll see you on the next episode.